0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's presenting sponsor is Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas and one of the true hidden gems of this area. If you're interested in local history, from the ranchers and pioneers who settled this region to the American Indians who lived here long before that, you can learn so much from the artifacts and collections at PPHM. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Today's guest is Dr. Kishore Yalamanchili, an assistant professor at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and the Division Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Northwest Texas Hospital. Now, that's a mouthful, so let me just nutshell it for you. He's a respiratory specialist and a critical care doctor who has spent the last four-plus months of this pandemic treating COVID patients in the ICU of Amarillo Hospitals. During that time, Kishore has been using Facebook to educate the public, and he's developed quite a following. I'm pretty sure you've read one of his widely shared posts. He writes honestly about what he sees on a daily basis, how the disease spreads, what it does to the body, why masks are necessary, what drugs might be effective, what therapies are not working. He's an educator. I mean, literally part of his job is to teach doctors, but he's built a public platform as a trusted medical educator for you and me, regular people. So I have really enjoyed his posts, and I thought my listeners might be interested in meeting the man behind the scrubs, so to speak. So here's Dr. Kishore Yalamanchili. Dr. Kishore Yalamanchili, welcome to the Hamrella hey Podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: Great, call me Kishore, please.
0: I will uh, I'll <laughs> leave off the doctor. Yeah, uh, Kishore, I, I'm really honored to have you here. I know you're busy, um, but I want to start in the same place I start with every one of my guests, uh, which is Why are you here in Amarillo? And I don't know much about your story, so what brought you to the Texas Panhandle?
1: I've uh, grown up in Texas. Uh, Part of my uh, education uh, had me outside of Texas in New Orleans for a while as a a pulmonary and critical care fellow. But uh, ultimately, when it came down to uh, determining where my career was going to begin and also where my wife was going to uh, study for her residency as an internal medicine doctor, we chose Texas Tech here in Amarillo and that essentially brought us here. And a lot of the things I like about Amarillo have kept us here. Okay. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Houston. I was there since probably the age of around two. And uh, southwest Houston area, and Houston at the time was, you know, this is late 70s, okay. early 80s is, you know, when you can imagine. Uh, was a lot like perhaps Amarillo's now, a lot smaller, um, way more compacted. And uh, so I've, I've been there. I've done that kind of city life. Thing and I, I uh, lived there all the way through undergraduate, where I was uh, undergraduate at Houston Baptist University. Okay, there.
0: What do you know about your family's history? How you ended up in Texas and Houston? Anything like that?
1: Well, my uh, father was an engineer, and my mother's a pediatrician. Back in the ni- late '60s, early '70s, the United States was uh, strongly bringing in uh, folks with medical and nursing background. From India, in particular, and in other countries, my parents found themselves coming here after my uncle. Uh, there weren't that many Indians in the United States back in the late '60s. For example, my uncle arrived in '69, I think. You know, so by the time I was born in '75 or so, you know, you really didn't have a so-called much of a so-called Indian community, so to speak. I right. grew up around everybody. Like, for example, my elementary school class. You know, my friends were. I had a friend that was. Um, a Jew. I had a friend that was a Kuwaiti. I had a friend that was uh, Iraqi. I had had friends that were Indian. I had friends that were black. I had friends that were, you know, white Christian. I mean, like, mm. you you name the person, and uh, I've been around them. Like,
0: Pretty multicultural in a sense, community, Yeah, then.
1: right, and it, it, you know, in America, where everyone can uh, hang out and, uh, and not uh, freak out out of each other's uh, histories. <laughs> so it's actually kind of a funny little group we had, you know, I kind of liken it to the kids in Stranger Things. Yeah. I've seen that TV yeah. show where a bunch of nerds, you know, making stuff and doing things and running wild in the town. And, you know, this is this is the days before helicopter parenting when you can get on a bicycle and run all over the place and everyone wasn't worried about being kidnapped by somebody or whatever. That changed really right after I grew up. And, and now, you know, everyone's kids get dropped off to school in a right. car and all this nonsense, you know. <laughs> so that was, that's kind of my background, just really just stayed very busy and, Pretty free, free spirit, I would say.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm always interested with, you know, first and second generation immigrant families, you know, like yours. How hard the family works to hold on to, you know, some cultural elements from country of origin to assimilate into, you know, some of what's happening in the United States. I, I mean, I wonder what that was like with your family.
1: Um, I've I've been back and forth a bit f- from India because we've had a family uh, still there. Okay. I have a lot of family, however, that is actually here in the United States either and all, all over really. So I've seen it both ways, which is really helpful when you're young. It helps you understand, yeah, certainly the obvious kind of things like where you came from and, you know, my, my grandparents' house resembled more of a mud hut with a thatched roof on wow, it than okay. anything else. Uh, so we didn't come from very big uh, beginnings. You know, like I think my mother was and father were some of the first in college in their families, you know, comparatively. So compared to what we're, you know, I've been able to do here, our families came from pretty small beginnings. But, you know, going back and forth and traveling, it does give you some perspective. Uh, It is one of the reasons why I think the United States is one of the greatest countries in the world, if not the the greatest country. Um, And I I have no interest in moving to India. Uh, You know, you you follow what I'm saying? Like, So I, I believe in the American culture specifically, I don't need to be called an Indian-American or anything like that. I'm a brown dude with an Indian background, but I, I couldn't care less about most of that, quite frankly. Okay. <laughs> you when- in a sense. So I, although I do know my uh, native language, we spoke it in the house, and even that multilingual element does help you understand other languages. It helps you with sound. It helps you understand people. So there are are benefits to having that, and we've tried to do that with our children as well, to speak our our language. um, What was that language? Telugu. It's a South Indian language. Um, There are a lot of bad things to learn from places like India, too, for example. Our own state has split in half, not in the recent uh, past. So unity is a very hard thing to preserve among people. Most countries have split into little pieces. Uh, And uh, I I think there is something to, in my view, a more unifying American culture... I'm more likely to you know, watch Top Gun than I am to go watch an Indian movie today. You know? okay. <laughs> so um, I do think um, there is something to that. And, and part, of, you know, part of why I you know, started participating in Facebook at all was that it's this idea that we, we no longer have kind of this similar unifying culture that we even did in the 80s. I'll give you an example. I used to love Top 40 Radio. Couldn't afford a CD player. I'd have my little tape deck. I'd, rec- I'd hit record hit and play record, at the yeah. same time. And, uh, you know, wait till that song I like come on, yep. and then, you know, record it. Okay. Right there with you. Yeah, my, either Def Leppard or whatever the heck I was listening to at the time. That was what you did then, and, and that's because you didn't have money for tapes and whatever. I didn't. <laughs> we didn't have anything. So uh, in that respect, we all had a similar music that we all heard on the radio together. Mm-hmm. There were only so many channels. There were only so many TV channels. You know, we also the same TV shows, but with internet and everybody in their own little world, you know, yeah, every artist can have a platform now. But on the other hand, very few artists unify us all, for example, or sure. very few shows. Or So pop culture, I think, is very important in, in unity in, in an indirect way. And everyone seems to have their own pop culture, which means you don't really identify with anybody. Everyone seems to think they tolerate everybody, but they don't really they only—it's—it's it's a kind of a fake tolerance because you don't really know them.
0: You can find your own community and dig into that you community into and, that. and not have to
1: leave it. Yeah, like it's almost like um, an echo. Ch- it's a very echo chambery, and at the same time, it, they're small groups, which mm-hmm. which may have its benefits too. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of, you know, well, I'd you love, find
0: a place to belong, maybe. Yeah, which. like
1: I, I love uh, electronics and audio equipment and stuff like maybe like yourself, and and I there's forums for that. You can hang out with audio nerds that like to do audio stuff. You know, so. There are some cool things about that, you know, but there's also the flip side. where is like, where where does your community actually begin? Then, yeah, where does it end? Like,
0: I'd, I'd like to talk about social media part in a minute. Before we get to that, though, I I want to hear about your career. So, sure. you know, you, you said your mom was a pediatrician. Did you grow up thinking you were going to end up in medicine? Was that kind of always um, top of mind? Or
1: it's not that it was forced upon me, but there is a. St- strong drive in a typical immigrant community to work hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so generally we had the academic will to do almost anything. You know, I, I've, I've done everything from etch circuit boards to program computers since, you know, third grade to do art, do artwork to, I mean, you know, building house models and things, you know, all sorts of, you know, skill sets that kind of picked up along the way. I spent a whole year studying Egypt when I was in elementary school, another year studying naval uh, uh, shipping and, and build models and stuff. So it, just that variety of things kind of gets you to a point where you can almost do anything if you wanted to. Right. But I think some combination of uh, perhaps my personality and what have you worked out to get into uh, medicine Usually, uh, if if you're a sharp person, you can get into things like medical school. Then the question is, what do you do afterwards and what's going on? How did I wind up in pulmonary critical care? Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, I thought I was going to medical school sort of like at that age, you're sort of ego-driven and you're you're thinking, well, you know, I'm going to do something really cool. Like neurosurgery sounds cool or you know, whatever, you know, you, you have this vision in your mind of what seems cool to you as something you might do. That might not be as interesting as you might think it is. You, In other words, you may not do, be okay with eight hours without a piss break. You know what I mean? You may not be okay with being called at 3 a.m. for a specific activity you have to spend four hours on. Right. Some of those things, actually, our bodies can't ha- handle. Some people are just better th- than others at them. So the nice thing about medical school is it allows you to diverge into different areas that fit your... Anyone from a psychiatrist all the way to a surgeon can happen... So you can medical school is interesting. You don't have to grow up yet, in a sense. Okay. You have time to grow up to so many different angles you could take in medicine. So I kind of like that about it.
0: So why? Yeah. Um, why did pulmonology end up
1: being a fit it's, for you? It was kind of weird. Like it was just uh, it was the I'd be the least likely person you'd ever imagine I'd be in critical care and pulmonary and critical care kind of blend together in a lot of ways. And um, at the time, I think back when I was at UTMB in Galveston uh, I- as a resident, uh, it just so happened that. I discovered I was cool under pressure, you know okay. the, the the, and not everyone is. So if there's a cardiac arrest going on, I can handle it without skipping a beat. Now is that a is that because that's a type of callousness? Is that because I don't I lack like emotion about it? I don't know what it is, but you know, do you want someone that's flying your airplane to be panicked when it's crashing, or do you want them to be able to do the job? Exactly. So some, some fields I think work with certain types of emotion sets where you can, you discover that you can handle that well and you can do that perhaps even better than other people. And you kind of gravitate towards maybe the things you're good at and doing cardiac arrests and dealing with ventilators and things seemed like it worked out. And I got great recommendation letters from the crowd there. And I wound up in LSU in New Orleans, which is a phenomenal group of people, better than I deserve, I'm sure. And, uh, they sort of made me into who I am ultimately as a pulmonary critical care physician. I actually did not know that much about pulmonary medicine going into it. I was probably okay. the least prepared because I decided this at the last second. What should I do? Critical care seems interesting, and okay, let's go for it. Okay, it was really a quite a terribly last minute decision. I very uninteresting actually, uh, but it worked out great for me. It, it sometimes the things we choose out of instinct uh, do work out well. How long have you been here in Amarillo? Here since '05. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while already.
0: And, you know, growing up in Houston doesn't mean you know anything about Amarillo. It's about as far as one mm-hmm. city can be from another city and sure. still be in the same state. You might as well sure. be L.A., you know? Right. But tell me about your impressions of the city upon, you know, coming here, deciding this is where we're going to plant our family, this is where I'm going to start my career. I mean, what did you think about the city at that point?
1: Well, at the time, it wasn't somewhere where I, I knew I had to stay. Okay. You know, the, the town had to sort of...
0: Could have been just job. a stopping point. Yeah, it could have the been a stopping
1: point. We were finishing up some training for my wife. And in theory, we could have gone elsewhere. We could have gone back to Houston where my parents still were. and But ultimately, what happened is my sister-in-law also came to do residency here, and then my brother moved here. We sort of all just sort of kind of fell into this place, and then my parents also moved here. Um, why did we decide here had a lot to do with just like an aligning of the stars so to speak i just got a phone call when i was working as a fellow in the icu and a guy was looking for um at the time one of my attending teachers and uh, asking if he wanted a job and and uh, he said well here no but gashor wants needs a job and he's looking to go back to texas and here i am that okay. it was really that it right. was one of those momentary like chance things in some ways that 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 transpired that way but I think what's more important is probably, like, why would you stay? Exactly, yeah. It's probably more important. Texas Tech uh, University Health Science Center um, and the people within it, I like what the deans there have done. I like what the faculty there, and many of who have changed now um, in that time frame, uh, have done in terms of creating a really cohesive, no-drama group. It's difficult to do that in medicine with a lot of you know, different egos and things like that. Um, they, especially in pulmonary critical care, uh, really allow me full reign to do what I think needs to be done. Um, I, I, I'm not nickel dime with too many meetings. I'm not a huge mm-hmm. meetings guy. Um, I like to get uh, the job done and and make sure that all of the people working with me and under me are all kind of happy. And yeah, I like I like a smooth humming machine as far as like critical care is concerned. And we've been able to create that, and we've steadily expanded from being just at Northwest Hospital to then also going to the the other um, associated long-term acute care hospitals now called vibra or to BSA hospital next door and to VA and we kind of so we built up to where our group is really everywhere
0: and there's time. a lot of cooperation it's not yeah carving out our own territory I mean everybody's
1: no, no not really um, you know there were there were community pulmonary critical care docs along the way and we helped them out with some of their coverage and whatnot so we don't really have a you know competitive sort of um, attitude towards it in that respect. It you know, we, we find that if we go everywhere, we diversify what we do, then what happens is in the community we have some say about how things take place everywhere mm-hmm. and it, it helps us in that respect. And and being with Texas Tech, it's technically a state institution. So we try not to get too far into the weeds on individual hospitals politics policies. You know, we 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 try to perform Largely independently of all of that as well. So, we are definitely not beholden to the various fiscal decisions of those okay. facilities. We're not, since we don't get paid much or anything by those places, we don't also have to do everything the way specifically they say we get our own autonomy that way. Okay. So, I like that kind of thing. I, I prefer an autonomous situation as a physician. Um, I, I think. That's a, another topic entirely, but you, the corporatization of medicine has its own consequences, that um, some of which are good and some of which are not, okay. as many of us would uh, attest to. I'm,
0: I'm thinking yeah. about the difference right now between, like, say, a hospital in Houston and a hospital in Amarillo, and what one might look like, because it's in the middle of this big urban environment, and mm. what ours might look like as sort of the hub for all of the panhandle, sure. is there something about a type of hospital like Northwest or like BSA might be in this area that's different from some of those other
1: ones? Um, Well, for starters, medicine is somewhat about scale. So like Mm -hmm. if you have to have a very, very specialized orphan disease of which there's not very many cases of something, you're not going to have a specialist like that in Amarillo because there's simply not enough cases of that one thing. That's gonna be something where people might fly from all over the state to to get that one person's expertise about one detail. So those types of medical centers, like the Texas Medical Center in Houston, or Parkland in Dallas, they tend to be much larger, much uh, bigger conglomerates. Why, wouldn't, why didn't I go to practice somewhere like that? I was asked to go to Baylor and, and whatnot and to go and stay there. But uh, to me, going to a group of 130 people where you're in meetings half the day about meetings, yeah. um, it's not really my thing. Um, there's much more bureaucracy in those types of supersized hospitals. So there's an entire cadre of doctors dealing with the bureaucratic angle, not just practice, which is fine. I mean, we need that too. Um, but a panhandle-sized scale hospital is something that covers this city, but it also covers Something like three to 400,000 people outside of the city, um, parts of New Mexico, a little bit of southern Colorado, occasional some people from western Oklahoma. So it, it, we, we're kind of in a strange location where we do get folks from here and there. It is a bit different, but at the same time, I've practiced in small towns in uh, around New Orleans for a while, and I've seen kind of what Galveston was like. So really seen different size cities, and um, I think... This is a really just a generally a good sized city with a, a, the right size hospital district for what it is. Okay, the uh, which is another interesting with this whole you know pandemic story is that no hospitals anywhere are really big enough for that. Yeah, in a, in a sense. So yeah. that, Houston's finding that out now. Yeah, and I mean. no, no no center anywhere in the country. You know, I've I've seen comments like, oh, if only you know we could go to Dallas for something. No. The, the reality is that you have hospitals in each city that is for the usual day-to-day operations of that city most countries or most towns most states they're not out building out massive mega centers with countless extra doctors and nurses that can sit around doing nothing until yeah. a major disaster happens
0: they're scaling according to the need right now
1: precisely which is which is why You know, it's part of the reason I kind of injected myself into Facebook, which I don't normally play around in. And, you know, now everyone says, oh, you're posting and it's interesting or whatever. I I normally don't get involved with that because I don't have the time. But I felt like this was important because one of the biggest uh, problems that happens in these large-scale disasters is a lack of communication causes a situation that is usually made much worse, whether it was New Orleans with Katrina Whether it's some of the flooding situations, I remember Hurricane or Tropical Storm Allison back when I was Mm -hmm. in um, Galveston, and Houston. uh, You know, nine eleven. Like, there's a lot of examples where the communication breakdown. The military deals with this all the time. Communication is a key factor. And while Facebook is good for certain things (laughs) and not others, um, there are lot. Incidentally, there's a lot of nurses, respiratory therapists, in particular. Maybe not as many doctors who tend to favor um, you know, either Facebook for entertainment or whatever it is they use it for. And I thought it would be an interesting way to see if I could get some messages out in times of need. It's sort of like, you know, because there's not like a... Uh, like, we don't have a unified radio and TV that we all listen exactly. to anymore. Yeah. So the problem is, like, how do you get a message out to everybody? You don't. Or everyone just stays in the dark. So that was part of the reason for that. It was... Uh, I noticed early on a huge level of denial regarding pandemic, which is classic. It's it's just what happens. Oh, it's happening in Italy. It's not a big deal. You know, studies clearly show you don't think it's happening to you until someone in your family dies. That's just how it goes. There's people all over the world dying all the time. You're not sitting there perseverating about it. You know, you're not really like, you know, you're not really worried about it, honestly. There's right? someone dying in India right now. Are you sitting there worried about it over here right here? Yeah, no, you're not. Yeah, it's easy to have that separation. It's, it's easy to have that separation. You're no longer, you're not anywhere near there. So I noticed this in particular when, when I first, when this first started happening and I asked a few basic requests of staff, I said, you know, you don't bring any jewelry to, to work. Don't, don't start wearing short sleeve shirts and take your watches off. And you not know, bring your jackets. And a week later, because we weren't sure at the time if this was, a, this was spread. Was this correct. like
0: mid-March, early March? Yeah, March. We okay. weren't
1: sure if the coronavirus in particular was spread by, you know, hand contamination yeah. as much or by surface spread. We just didn't know how much it was. Turns out it's not that bad, fortunately. But at the time, we didn't know. But I figured, you know, here's a task. We see if everyone can do it. If I were to simply say it just uh, once, how many people are going to listen to me and take it for real? Yeah. Take it seriously and actually change their behavior as a result. Because I can't—if I can't get you to not wear your watch to work, how in the world am I going to handle a parking lot full of patients with all hell breaking loose? Okay, which is which is something that can happen in these cases. Mm-hmm. We didn't know, so um, you know, uh, they didn't think uh, Hurricane Katrina was going to be that bad. But that was all my friends at Charity Hospital that. We're sitting there ventilating patients with no electricity, with exactly, on yeah. their laps. You know, laying patients' heads on their laps and bagging people. So these are things that can happen, and, and it's only denial that tells you that you can't. You don't want to be the Cassandra, you know, saying the sky is falling all the time either. So it's like, how do you ease people into that? So I figured, let's give people a task, get them to do a few things. A week goes by, nothing happens. It's almost like I, I didn't even speak. It's like, oh, you know. So then I started making it more draconian. I told the residents and such, all right, don't bother showing up to work unless you're dressed appropriately. You have all this stuff off, and if you have scrubs, start wearing them because you're gonna, you're, we're going to need to practice for this. You're not going to get this in the last second because when, it, it, becomes more like, it becomes more like how the military functions. Mm-hmm. Critical care in medicine is there is a top-down element to it. Someone's got to know what they're doing, and someone's got to run that show if you have 30, 40, 50, or 100 patients at a time and all hell is breaking loose. It becomes a command architecture. Um, Fortunately, I, you know, trained for a little while at VA, at uh, Brooks Army Medical Center in San Antonio, and at Wilford Hall in San Antonio. And it just so happens that because I happened to be a medical student in San Antonio under military people, that I got at least a glimmer of what that looks like. I've always loved the military anyway. I was, you know, like I said, I, I, I used to read entire books on naval things and I don't you know don't get me started but the the basically uh, uh, I kind of have a sense of what that is you know what that command structure looks mm-hmm. like you have to be calm under pressure but you've got to figure out how to navigate all these people into what needs to be done one way or the other and I saw nobody else was doing this nobody had the skill set or the background for that matter the, the training background I'm not saying I'm you know I'm, I'm some I've had no official military training, don't get me right, wrong, right. but I've been around enough of these guys. I graduated from college, uh, and I started medical school at 19. I was the youngest graduate start in San Antonio, um, because I, I skipped several grades along the way. Okay. Um, and But being with those folks at such a young age, and and seeing people who were early military officers in training, in medical, and everything else. A little bit of rubbed off, at least enough to make me know that that stuff is important. Like there is a element of that that they don't teach you in college, in high school, you're not getting that, you know, without a few few of those experiences. And so, of course, we've had bad years in critical care. We on a normal year, we could run out of meds, we could run out of ventilators, or we could run out of beds. We go on diversion periodically in town where you know we don't we can't take any more patients. Mm-hmm. It happens here okay. on a normal basis. Forget about you know pandemics and whatnot. So when I saw this, I was like, uh, this is like a tsunami coming if we can't handle a normal year sometimes with a bad flu year or what have you. So getting all these folks together, you know, we started doing some minor posts about details about what we ought to be doing. And
0: initially it was kind of for your staff, right? I mean, you yeah, were just was, thinking this is...
1: Yeah, it was a mix of that. And maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was a mix of me going, wait a minute. Um, how do I communicate with people but also how do I get people on the same page as far as new therapies like what are we going to do with people w- what about all these outlying towns how do they know yeah. how many beds we have there's not like some kind of we don't have a computer dashboard somewhere that tells Spearman that we have beds so they have to call and so you know it, it becomes a community wide problem across the panhandle where there's not like a, a network of that where someone's programmed some little computer somewhere where everyone knows where everyone is there's right, no such right. thing so you have to, that was part of it. Um, par, maybe part of it was, I don't know, I'm not sure, uh, the, the motivations <laughs> for it. It's weird because as a doctor, you, you've got to be very careful getting into anything related to social media. People either think you're a quack, you either have some kind of a nefarious motive... You have. They may view you
0: as like a spokesperson for your for the the hospital or the institution. Exactly,
1: which is why, by the way, I didn't do this on Texas Tech's Facebook page Mm -hmm. as a actual official Texas Tech person in a sense. Um, Since I work for VA and Texas Tech technically, and I don't know, I am careful about how I say things. I've been around death and destruction and mayhem for my entire life since I was a kid. Quite frankly, if you think about it, you know I've seen more people die than most people would ever, s- entire cities worth of people see, if you think about it for right, a second. Right, So I've seen it all. I've talked to lots of people in lots of different situations. In my And In my mind, okay, who's going to be able to speak in this context without getting tongue-tied and saying something they're going to regret? It is not yeah. easy unless you really have a broad experience. You have to understand a liberal. You have to understand a conservative. You have to understand a libertarian. You have to understand people's uh unusual religious viewpoints some of which are way off the you know beaten path you have to know all these human beings exist
0: and it's a written medium too so you've got to be able to communicate that way which is not a guarantee which is not a
1: guarantee either you have so how do you say just enough that you're not going to say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. Uh, you can imagine how many times i have to sit and proofread what i'm writing yeah i wondered that okay wait a minute like okay how is this coming off you know, what am I trying to say? Yeah, I'm ejecting some bias because I really think this is important. Because if you say everything is just simply data, you know, people interpret whatever they want out of it. That's the problem. So if you say say that five people died, some people say, oh my God, five is too many. Like, nobody cares. We're all monsters. On the other hand, if you say that five people died, uh, uh, people say, well, see, it's not that bad. It's only five people. So... There is this weird sort of spectrum of people and what they think a risky situation looks like. What, how do you calibrate that? How do people know what a normal hospital looks like? How easily one can be overwhelmed? How easily a town can be overwhelmed? Um, I was worried even at the time of like, where in the world is our food supply gonna come from? All the, the major game theory concepts of flu pandemics posited just truly apocalyptic situations, hmm. meaning inability to bring food and food to the city, transportation uh, uh, people out of work because of being sick, uh, people out of work because families being sick. We had a little bit of that with meat packing and such and and a little bit of that with a run on the stores. You've never been in a hurricane area. You don't know what a run on stores exactly, looks like, yeah. and you may not know that. that never happened here. So. It's never happened here. I don't, not, not that I've lived here. So I was like, okay, people don't really get it because they haven't lived that. They haven't lived in New Orleans where you you you, you have a hurricane every so often, and the, the Walmart goes empty. It doesn't actually fill up for several days after the hurricane's gone. You know, people don't realize that you just don't know where your food's coming from. You don't want inside a panic. You don't you don't want the hoarding necessarily. But then if you don't semi-hoard. How's Walmart gonna empty the shelves so they can fit more stuff in it? On the other hand, this is not something isolated to, say, one town like New Orleans was. This or it's, it's, or an isolated state. It's global. Right. Where's all your crap gonna come from? If you've never soldered a circuit board or programmed a computer or built one or whatever, you may not realize how many pieces come from all over the world to make whatever it is you have in your house. And my concern was not just the medical mayhem but that all of the people, all the medical staff would be dealing with potentially home mayhem regarding sick family members, food supplies, and everything else. How can you possibly run a hospital if the people running the hospital are not actually being taken care of? Yeah. You, yeah. So this is the thing. And we thought it out a little bit when Ebola came recently. You know, that wasn't that long ago. And so we we, we considered this with West Nile and all these other viruses. You know, things. these things show up every few years. It's not like it's a... It's a rarity, but these big ones, these big pandemics only come so often, and these are kind of the concerns that kind of brought me in there, and, and and knowing what I know about all sorts of people, I mean, I worked in, everyone from prison when I was a resident in UTMB, so you know what that crowd accent feels like. Mm-hmm. I've worked with tons of police officers who, you know, who bring me patients all the time and what have you. I've worked, I mean, just, there is not a group I have not worked with, vet, from veterans to elderly to the children, like... There is nobody that I can deal with. So I know all these different view angles that you, you are your message is being broadcasted to. It's the reason why I think journalism has gone downhill, just large extent. Mm-hmm. A lot of journalists just don't know enough about the world to know how to separate BS from facts. Yeah, lack of experience. So it's a lack of experience with how the world works, how things are made, how science works. So in other words, their BS detector is not really calibrated well. A lot of people think this is all pure political bias. It's not purely political bias. I've been watching science news and medical news for a long time. The, the problem is the journalist themselves oftentimes doesn't know it's important, which is why the questions they ask and ultimately the, the meaning that comes out of this ends up being marginalized. And then it seems political because it is, because ultimately what will happen is if you don't know all of those background details, your superficial biases tend to drive... The supposed "quote unquote" narrative that people okay. see all the time. I don't think it's a conspiracy so much as it's human nature. When you don't know enough core science values to actually know how to critically think enough to clarify those nuances.
0: So you've you've ended up in this yeah <laughs> kind of accidental education position, you know. And I my my guess is that had I had you as a guest, you know, a year ago, people would have been interested, wanted to hear, but might not have recognized you. At this point, I think a lot of people might recognize your name because they've come across something that has been shared or whatever, and you're almost speaking as, you know, a trusted representative of the medical community here. I, I wonder if other doctors look at what you're doing and say, man, I'm glad it's you and not me, or if they're like, you know, thank I've you had for... Good fe-
1: so far, the feedback's been very good. So everywhere I go and, you know, the nursing staff said, yeah, keep... Keep posting, please. Keep saying things that are hopefully uh, some combination of factual or rational. Mm-hmm. Um, I have all these conversations in my clinic every day. Um, I, I kind of w- w- watch what I'm writing from the perspective also of like, you know, are a lot of doctors and nurses actually sharing and reading it? Am I, you know, who am I? Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of watching to see who is looking at it. It's actually fascinating to see what gets shared and what doesn't in social media too. There are things that just aren't salacious enough. No one gives a crap, but they're extraordinarily important. So that people's calibration of what's important is the real conspiracy. It's not yeah. real. like, in other words, we create these situations for ourselves where we just don't know what matters, and then we we think the media is at fault necessarily, but because we, we're not noticing. But I, I I find that like just figuring out what to say has a lot to do with, you know, you start developing a sense as you have obviously doing podcasts and everything else of what it is do what it is that people care about. And you all you do have to speak to some degree to that, otherwise they're not going to listen to sure. other things that you got to hit whatever need about.
0: they feel like. Yeah, there needs may be, be some met. message
1: I want to get across that may be important, but how do I posit that in a way that is meaningful to that person's life versus my life or whatever? Because there's a lot of objectives involved when you're trying yeah. to say something. Here's the thing: like, why would anyone post anything online or otherwise, or say anything news or otherwise, if there was not an objective? There's exactly. always an objective, exactly. So whether that is what the motivation behind that objective is, I'm perfectly transparent about it. If someone asks me, what, what's your what's your bias on this? I'll, I'll tell them right away, you know. So I, I don't have a problem with that at all. But there is something that I think is true. Consistent honesty as far as your willingness to sort of like not have a canned answer for everything even on written word there is a depth of transparency and honesty that is apparent to people they sort of get it after a while like you know not only that but there's a, you have to be consistent if one person says one thing one time that that might be an anomaly but if they consistently are that way mm-hmm. then it probably isn't good example would be that is, um, you know, and you, you always shudder to bring in the president and something because, you know, you, people will either hate you or like you for it. But I find it extraordinarily unlikely that a guy like Donald Trump is going to be colluding with anybody for anything. It's paradoxical. The guy will retreat almost anything instantaneously. This is not the mind of a person. Who is, is it, sitting around developing conspiracies? With yeah, Russians. the, the eight-dimensional
0: chess theory that yeah, there's always the, a, a or, big strategy or, behind or, everything,
1: or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it just the motive. It's just not his motivation. It's just it, the idea that he has some kind of nefarious motive. I don't think that's my concern at all. Like, there's no evidence of this at all. You know, whether you're conservative or liberal, like he seems very, you know, knee-jerk, matter-of-fact. And people like the people that like him like that about him, and that's fine. I think it's it's a type of strange, refreshing honesty that is whether you like him or not. I mean, will you like his politics, right. whether You like what he even said is irrelevant to that. But it's hard to believe he's he's taking a whole lot of time to connive and lie to you one way or the other. I'm I'm not happy about the fact that he sort of re, you know, retweeted some medical points, which then you know become taken as gospel by a lot of people, and that's really frustrating. Um, you know, when presidents do this, and I, I've seen it with Obama, I've seen it with every president. They'll say something and their their follower base is just so enamored with what they said. It yeah, just, they, just the it nature
0: just, of their platform gives the, it. Authority. yeah, it
1: gives it an authority and all that. and I get that. so that that's sometimes annoying, but I don't think there is a an indirect trustworthiness that what he says is actually what he means. That's what I was trying to get at when I was posting is, there's not a really great reason for you to make stuff up. And even then there's conspiratorial people that have come on and accused me of, who knows what? You know mm-hmm. like, you may not see all the messages, but when they, when they show up in the you know, thousands of people you add as little followers, you, you wind up with all sorts of messages from people that you're not sure, is it okay, Is that psychiatric illness? Like did you not yeah. pay attention to a word I just said? I just said this in the, the message, but you're saying I said something different. It's weird how people take data. And they, they turn it into a different set of information than you're trying to convey. How, how do you deal amazing. with that?
0: Because you've, I mean, you've almost made yourself a public figure related yeah. to something very controversial. And so I know you, you get pushback that we may or may not see.
1: I've gotten used to it in a way. Is it because, that calmness well, here, under pressure? Here's the just thing. Un- in critical care medicine, what we do is deal with death every day. Think about that. I mean, you know, in the United States, 20% of people that come to the ICU are going to die of something or another. Hmm. It, they're just their time to die, and that's just how it goes. So one, you have to get a comfort level with one of the worst parts of a person's fears. Okay. In terms of their family member dying, them dying. You know, It's something we have to address every single day. You can imagine how many different viewpoints come at me every day just from that alone normally.
0: You're, you're dealing with the, I'm the dealing, worst. I'm that dealing with that every people. day, yeah. right?
1: The difference is I don't have to deal with it like a politician deals with it. I don't have to lie to everybody every day about everything because I want a specific base that I'm going to say one thing to. And I want to voters over here I'm going to say another thing to, even though I don't prioritize it too equally. You've like yeah. So yeah. I, when I'm saying this in Facebook, I can say it purely from my perspective, and that's the end of it. Um, believe it if you want, use it if you need to, but I don't have to convince you of anything. I don't need your money. And you money. don't feel the need to just no, carry on your an argument mon- with somebody. I, neither need your, I don't need your money. I don't need you as yeah. a patient necessarily. I have a gajillion number of patients coming in. It's 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 neither here nor there for me. It, 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 I don't have any real particular motive in that respect. I have no conflict of interest, so to speak, that concerns me, except... I want the hospital center to run smoothly so we don't all have mayhem. Um, But, uh, yeah, yeah, all of that's been fascinating, but I think it comes from a position where we're used to doing a lot of teaching because I teach a lot of residents, um, hundreds of residents put through school. And so I train doctors, not train students necessarily. I train people already doctors to become better doctors, essentially, residents and such, so they can go get their licenses and everything. So we get we field lots of questions, both from a highly technical perspective, or if I've spoken to national audiences in the past, um, you know that's a different level. Or if I'm speaking to a nursing group, that's a different level. If I'm speaking to um, a patient group, that's a different kind of. So I'm, I've gotten used to a huge variety of audience types. So I I do tend to speak to the audience that. Um, I'm addressing. All right. I very easily can turn the switch off regarding uh like techno speak and what have you. Uh you know, I, I understand what it's like when I didn't know anything technical. I know I remember what it was like before I was a doctor, before I was a uh, you know, science degree and whatnot. I knew I know what words are gonna be completely lost on someone that's not in that field. So uh, that I think helps as well to okay. bring across a message. You can lose someone in technical speak quickly. On the other hand, if you look at what's been happening with the hydroxychloroquine drama, you really can't get around that without actually defining some of the technobabble to people. What is a randomized controlled trial, uh, you know, study design? What, you know, these are things that if you have no idea these things exist at all, you dumb it down to the point where this drug works or it doesn't work, and everyone just arguing nonsense. The problem is is that you, you, at some point you have to elevate the education level of everybody. And it is a strange thing, but you know we don't get a lot of opportunities to train people in science speak yeah, very often. Yeah, exactly. And when you have a captive audience, and you go, like well, this, this is something that is useful to a lot of people, I just don't realize it. But critical thinking, it helps you in everything. It helps you be better at business. It helps you be better at, if you are a... You know, I went to Baptist school. It's going to help you be better minister. It's going to be help you be better at almost anything you do. Critical thinking is going to help you uh, both communicate better and also analyze your particular situation better. Um, it's going to help you analyze your risks and benefits of everything you do better. Um, so I think those are those are things that, luckily in my life, I got experience from a lot of people, from a lot of influences from. And if I'm giving anything back, of course, you know I've taking care of probably, a, I don't know, who knows, with all the residents and everybody, there's probably over 100,000 patients here um, in, in the area, uh, give or take, you know, some. We as doctors in, in that kind of field do a lot for the community in a sense, mm-hmm. but this is a different type of benefit, I hope, to provide to the community. It's like teaching and speaking is perhaps something that I've always been kind of good at and I do. Maybe that's why I went into a field where a lot of people die and that having to have those conversations is really important. So, you know, that, that's kind of where I kind of came at it. But I, all the different kind of folks that come at me with all sorts of questions, I have, I have no problem speaking to a paranoid schizophrenic all the way to, you know, someone that's six. It's hmm. perfectly normal. I have no problem with that. You're, you're not going to live in a world where these people aren't there. Yeah. And this is, this is kind of brings me to, I guess, maybe the, my, my broadest point I could ever make is that a lot of different people talk about tolerance, You know, tolerance for this, tolerance for race, tolerance for who knows what. The reality is most people don't really know how to tolerate anything until they actually subject themselves to each of those types of people. Mm. In other words, if you've never been around a violent schizophrenic, okay, you're not really sure what to tolerate. You've never been around a serial killer in a prison. I'm not so sure you know exactly what to tolerate. Yeah. Okay. on On the other hand, if you haven't been around someone who is a, a veteran who has had PTSD, you're know, you you're not sure what you can tolerate. It is very difficult to tolerate lots of things, way more difficult than saying, oh yeah, tolerate this and tolerate that. Yeah. There's entire families that can't handle their schizophrenic family members, which is why a lot of schizophrenics end up homeless. So it's not that these are bad people, but tolerance is something you can say you can do, but only very few people really, really do. I don't care which part of the political hour you're from and, what you think about race relations or anything else, most people, and I, 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 I'm talking about every racial group, has a lot of stuff they don't tolerate, okay? Mm. <laughs> and maybe rightfully so, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the calibration there is in terms of people's thoughts. But I, I, I think there's a lot of broader lessons to be learned with critical thinking, and, and it has to do with you don't really know all sorts of types of people unless you're willing to, to put yourself out there to actually meet those kinds of folks. Yeah. You just, you know, and you do podcasts. You meet different folks. I'm sure a banker has a different perspective than whoever. That's why why (laughs) I I
0: try to talk to as many different people as I can.
1: Sure, sure. But 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 Amarillo does have a lot of great folks in it. Just to get back to the subject of Amarillo, you know, you if it didn't, I wouldn't be here. If one thing I'm not, I'm not an idiot. And if I thought this was a bad place filled with bad people or something like that, or everyone was quote unquote racist like they make all certain groups out to be, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here. It's just simply not the case. I think most people gel together quite well. I felt like, as an Indian person or what have you, I I felt like I've had excellent relationships with everybody here. I mean, I I don't have any problem with any particular group, really. Um, So I think you know, not overblowing some of those concerns as well is, to me, a factor. Otherwise, you end up burning down cities and whatnot, like what's happening today. So I, I think if everyone kind of looks at things from that voice of reason you just will have a bit more cohesive society, whether it's dealing with a pandemic or, you know, racial tensions or whatever the heck you issue you have, you know. <laughs> so,
0: This week's episode is sponsored by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, located in Canyon on the campus of West Texas A&M University. Now, since the start of the summer, the museum has been welcoming guests at 25% capacity. Panhandle Plains encourages guests to book tickets online at panhandleplains.org, And face masks are required for the protection of fellow guests as well as museum staff. They've also set up hand sanitizer and washing stations throughout the facility. It's a safe place to be. Remember, Panhandle Plains is the largest history museum in Texas. And that's not just a statement about its three million artifacts, but also about its enormous physical space. You've got plenty of room there to social distance. Right now, they're offering a $40 summer pass for four people, which is good for admission through Labor Day. So take advantage of that now. You can visit the museum all through August. It's available at panhandleplains.org. You know, we're barely halfway through 2020, but this will be a year that's represented in history museums for decades to come. Places like Panhandle Plains, I think, are more important than ever, especially if we're going to preserve our history and learn from it. I'm super grateful for their long-term sponsorship of this podcast. So learn more. Go get admission tickets at PanhandlePlanes.org. Okay, I'm back with Kishore Yalaman Chili. Kishore, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. I ask similar questions of all my guests uh, and eager to hear your answer to these. The first one is relatively new and I've been asking, and we've been talking a lot about this already, but what's one thing that you think the last few months – Uh, whether it's related to the pandemic, to the protests, any of that. What's one thing that's revealed to you about Amarillo or Amarillo people?
1: On the whole, this town has run very cohesively uh, from the perspective of either pandemic response or, for that matter, other places of the country having riots about things. I think people have demonstrated a tremendous amount of calm reserve and effort here uh, to where... Everyone from doctors to nursing staff, you know, even with the virus and all the fears of it, there's there's never been a mutiny. There's never been a—there's really been—it's really been low drama here, quite frankly. So one thing that's good about—generally about Texans and is particularly true in Amarillo is uh, people figure it out, despite all the noise and other mayhem they sort of sort it out, and, and things go pretty smoothly here. Pretty Do you passive.
0: include some of the reaction to the mask, no mask, and, and that level of compliance? Is that kind of what you expected? Or is that
1: Yeah, the mask situation is fascinating. Um, I think I expected it. People that live in the middle of the country who have decided not to move to a large city live here for a reason. They live here for uh, the space. They live here for the, the freedom that smaller places give from you know, compared to, say, living in New York City where there's people living le- next to you, on top of you. Right. You know, you can't make this sound, you can't do that. So there's a generally more libertarian-leaning uh, liberal or conservative who's most more likely to live in these types of cities. So it's not easy to tell a lot of people, hey, do this. Yeah. Even me, I tend not to be one—I tend to sort of tell people what to do, not so much I'm the one that is told what to do. I get it. I understand why people would not want their sort of sort of freedoms obliterated, so to speak, by having to do one more thing. They told you to wear seatbelts, and you wore them. And you ha- they told you to do this. I I, I can see where that um, hesitation comes from. But at the same time, I'm fine with that. In the sense that these types of people, the people that um, I, I continue to say it, they, they they get made fun of because maybe they're you know they, there's an anti-science or maybe. There is an extreme level of skepticism that's a little bit overboard. But you know what? Those are the same people that are going to go all the way across the world and fight Nazis. Yeah. The, this type of behavior, while it may seem unusual and seems strange to the people that, you know, the anti-establishment behavior that might seem extraordinarily strange, from a thought process or just sort of heuristic process in a person's mind— I think you have to appreciate those people for what they are. These are the same people that oddly enough won't let you know Amarillo be run by dictatorships at okay. some point. You know, so there is a it's a give and take to that, but you know American freedom um, has a sort of style to it, and I don't have a problem with it necessarily. I've been around those folks all my life, and i've and I have some of those unusual concepts myself, perhaps. I don't have a problem with it. But as people have come around, though, they've, they've, once it's been more and more discovered that they are working and useful, you see more and more people using them. All right. And there's also a lot of rule of law folks here, meaning if you codify into law, they'll do it. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, if you, you know, do weird executive orders and punish one business and not another business and all this kind of deal, they're rightfully upset. So there's a lot of that mayhem uh, that I think, again, was a, was a mistake of the CDC. They didn't have a policy right from the beginning, so everyone felt like their particular business was being persecuted. Despite all of that, emerald have done fairly well. No one's, you know, riding against anything and causing any mayhem. I'm sure there's a lot of people in a lot of pain economically, though. I, d- I don't doubt that for a second. Um, I've mentioned that numerous times, but I think, this could have been a lot worse. Yeah, pandemic could have been a lot worse, and the response in the town could have been a lot worse. So I'm pretty proud of what everyone's done here.
0: Okay, well, let's take a let's take yeah. a hard left turn. Yeah. What's your favorite local restaurant?
1: Ooh, um, I have at least a couple that are very good. I'll
0: and take I, a couple if you want <laughs>
1: to. I've been to a lot of places around the world, first of all. So I, I for a lot of different reasons, but um, some kind of a, a bit of a critic on that front, a little bit of foodie. Um, I think Bangkok, Tokyo has always done great here as mm-hmm. far as food's concerned. Why? Because it's, it's consistent and it's authentically Thai. And it's hard to maintain that long-term. I've, the other place I think that's done a really good job is uh, down the street from me is Punjabi Affair over there in the medical center. Sure. They're really good because they're, even for an Indian restaurant, no matter where you go in the country, their food is good, okay. Because I've been, I've lived in Houston. Where That's good a lot know. More yeah. Indians, and it's not. I've seen restaurants come and go, like you know, people change underwear. I mean, like for Indian restaurants and such, and they've done a great job.
0: What does <laughs> this area have too much of?
1: I guess heat, maybe, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You come from Houston. So uh, Houston, yeah, certainly yeah, I, I you can handle I like handle the it. drier air here. Allergies. All All allergies right. is what you have too much of here. Yeah, there, it, As a
0: respiratory expert, that's... Yeah, uh, there
1: is nothing like it. Yeah, that is the one thing I see too much of. Okay. Here, for sure, uh, uh, more than anything. What,
0: is, <laughs> what does this area not have enough of?
1: Well, what I'd like to see here is I'd like to see the schools starting, and this is true of just uh, the region in general, is I'd like to see science fairs being done here. Hmm, okay. And what a science fair basically is, is it's a judge competition where students actually create a hypothesis-driven experiment and they collect data about that experiment, uh, understand the flaws and uh, uh, benefits of that experiment and what the conclusions are. Why do you have to do this? Because if you don't actually teach that, all you ever teach is book science and taking the task test and whatever, um, you're not going to have children that know what I know. Okay. In fact, I, even today, it's not that easy to catch up to me for any child in terms of just knowledge base. Why? Because I did all these things from when I was a kid. So if you're, if, to at least provide that opportunity, and I'm not saying all kids have to learn this, but for for us to advance as a city, for us to increase our academic standing here, whether it's uni- your universities in the area or otherwise, you have to generate people who are, or at least capture people who have critical thinking ability. Otherwise what will happen is they will leave town and they'll go somewhere else. right? And they won't come back here, um, and that's going to always create a, a vacuum that drives those talented people that are born in Amarillo to uh, Houston or Dallas or Los Angeles or wherever. So to bring people of that caliber back here, you need to provide those opportunities, and I think science fair is one of those that I participated in when I was young. It makes a huge difference to go there and even just see other kids and what they're thinking, see that process play out. Um, actually, do science, not just read about it in a book or, or read about an experiment in a book. Actually, doing one, and where you where you need to actually accomplish something. Okay, That's my my take.
0: <laughs> how do you uh, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area?
1: Um, I look at uh, the United States in general. I think small to medium sized towns, and I consider Amarillo medium sized, mm-hmm. have changed dramatically because of the advent of the internet. The advent of internet shopping, the advent of some chain restaurants and other experiences. Realistically, if you go to any average, oh, I don't know, suburb in Houston, it's not that different from Amarillo. Oh, look, you got a Best Buy and you got a this and that McDonald's, whatever. There is a certain rubber stamping of America that has become a little bit frustrating. It's it's just becoming culturally kind of blah. Yeah. Um, which is good and bad. It's, it has its pros and cons, I suppose. The, the good is you have an Amarillo, I think, compared to, say, 40 years ago, you have a lot more opportunity here to experience a lot more things than people once did because information is available all over the place, that kind of thing. Um, you, you know, even, uh, We can get more in Amarillo now in terms of medical knowledge from online than I did when I was in Houston, even if I went to the library where not all the books were there. So all think right. about that. You know, We have things now that a big city didn't even have when I was growing up. So to say that we're sort of like deprived of something here is nonsense. Got great schools where people have, you know, I know that people are making it into great universities from here, all of that. I think in my mind, the, those experiences and opportunities um, need to happen here. They'll happen if the schools make that a priority and, and work on those things. Okay.
0: Yeah. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo?
1: Well, I'm enjoying the new downtown district over there. Okay. I'm going to not pitch my own neighborhood that I live in just because it's, well, I live there, so obviously I like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I do like what they're doing downtown. I think that, again, it's more, it does take some tax dollars, and there's a lot of arguments about whether, you know, I've seen all the arguments regarding all those politics regarding it. But it creating spaces where people come together I think is a good thing. So I, I like that little district. Okay.
0: A <laughs> couple more questions. What's your favorite local coffee shop?
1: Uh, lately I've been enjoying Strata coffee over okay, the over center. by the hospital. Yeah, Yep. Yep. They're, uh, doing a good job and we've been kind of frequenting them cause we, we live right there. Does it get pretty good yeah. traffic
0: from medical center employees? And-
1: I hope so. I'm not really sure. Um, coffee is always an interesting thing cause you can make it really cheap and really that in your hospital, for example, Sure. or you can go somewhere that does specialty coffee with an espresso machine and all that. I tend to like that. So I, I, I tend to go and, grab coffee at those places (laughs) all right so when was the last time you
0: went to cadillac ranch
1: cadillac ranch hmm. maybe when i moved here
0: okay (laughs) 2005 i don't really really go
1: i don't really frequent the place yeah
0: well you live here now yeah i go
1: to sam's club right there but okay
0: (laughs) cadillac ranch adjacent i guess that's okay um Kishore, that, uh, that ends the, the eight straight questions. I like to conclude by asking my guests to endorse something. Mm-hmm. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience?
1: Kind of self-serving, but we, me and a, a group of guys, we, we thought it would be great to have a sort of world-class gym in town. You know, we, we had the option of doing this in Houston or Dallas or somewhere else, but we felt like, hey, let's do this in our community where we bring together um, folks from the community, pull some money from a lot of people, and we um, built a new place. We wanted a place that had glass in it. Mm-hmm. You know, tired of big box garbage, tired of strip malls. Uh, you know, Emerald needs... If you want people to stay in Emerillo, you need to make better than that. You want people to stay in the medical district, you need better than that. So our, we figured, let's do that. Let's make a place that you won't even find if you go to Houston or Dallas. A lot of glass and, you know, uh, super clean. And, you know, of course, I'm a critical care physician. Uh, cleanliness is my thing. And you called
0: it Contagion Um, Athletics. Hilarious. uh, I know. It's kind of
1: ironic. Uh, It's kind of a brainchild of uh, Kevin Van Voorhis, our trainer, that we worked on to build this place with. And um, he had a kind of clothing line based on that concept uh, long before this, and we kind of built that up a little bit. We sell nationwide, so that brings some money back and tax dollars back to Amarillo and stuff like that. So it, uh, it helps support, create this place, and we felt like it's a good thing to have... Uh, money not leave in franchises and we provide opportunities here of businesses that are local. Um, we can employ locals. So I'm a big, I'm a fan of that concept as well. And, you know, we have a bunch of folks over there they are good role models too. So it's like we can, you know, whether it's in fitness or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of a fun thing we all came up with. And it's, again, how do we, how do you get some Indians and some white people and some, you know, Muslim people and some, christians and some you know all sorts of different types of people to build a place together and it really is a labor of love that we design by hand on our computers we design the furniture i mean we really it's like a piece of art for us we really wanted to build something we loved and we'd hope people love it too that was kind all of right. my take on it <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: kishore yalaman chili thank you so much for being on the podcast i appreciate cool.
1: it very good <laughs>
0: And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks, especially to Kishore for the interview. He pretty much came to my house right out of the ICU to record it. He was wearing scrubs. Uh, Also to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thanks also to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring the episode. If your business is interested in sponsoring the show, or if you as an individual want to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo. Supporters of Hey Amarillo include my executive producers, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossaman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Joshua Rafe, Chris Elda, Patrick Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, and Jason Burr. This has been episode 156. My name is Jason Boyette. I'll see you next week.